I got a question for you. Who's got it better than us? Nobody. Come on. Let's go, Blue. We got the win against Ohio State. It's a good day. Uh, we had Thanksgiving. We had the, the game, uh, interception, and the final minute. That's a good, uh, a good way uh, to come off uh, of Thanksgiving and to begin uh, the Christmas season. Um, excited uh, to be able to kick off an Advent series uh, today. Uh, we've uh, been doing our kids' equip classes during service the, the last month, and today they're taking a break, and so it's good. Uh, I know we have uh, Mike in the house who's been teaching the elementary uh, class and some of our elementary kids uh, in the service today. Excited for that. They also are preparing uh, to sing uh, some Christmas songs uh, and uh, we are going to uh, and be having those Christmas songs performed by our kids, uh, both our preschoolers and our elementary schoolers, for our Christmas Eve service. I know uh, we've been kind of sorting through some plans and details. I wanted to share with you uh, that we have solidified our plans for Christmas Eve. We're going to be uh, having our Christmas Eve service. Christmas Eve this year falls on a Sunday, so we're going to keep our one service in the afternoon and bump it back uh, just a little bit to 4 o'clock to give us a little uh, bit of room on the back end. So Christmas Eve, four o'clock here at Crossroads. Uh, super thankful to be able to <clears throat> use this space and to meet here uh, and excited to celebrate uh, Christmas Eve uh, together uh, as a church. So uh, if you're in town, uh, we would love for you to come, invite somebody to join you. Uh, if you're away, know that we love you and are going to be praying for you uh, as you travel. Uh, but today uh, we begin our Advent series uh, called Hope for a Weary World, uh, and we are going to be walking through the book of Ruth. Uh, this may seem like uh, an unusual uh, book to walk through for Advent season, but in many ways, the story of Ruth is the story behind Christmas. Uh, we could call it the story behind the story. It's, it's really what uh, gives us uh, the background for understanding at least a part, but kind of in a, in a, in a way, a significant part of the background of the story. We, we could have looked, and we have uh, in the past done a sermon series walking through the first two chapters of Matthew or the first two chapters of Luke, but we decided to, to not do that, but instead to, to look at Ruth so that we, we see how God was providentially working out his plan of redemption beforehand to bring about that redemption in an unexpected way. And so when we look at the book of Ruth, uh, we are going to see uh, a number of different elements that, that really take us to the heart of Advent. It's a story of ordinary people, uh, even God using unexpected people. Uh, in desperate times, <clears throat> working out his hidden providence to bring about gracious redemption. Uh, that really is the, the story of Advent. Uh, Ruth is the story behind Christmas, I've said. <clears throat> it's written to, to give us hope, uh, and, and it does by showing us God's hidden providence at work and bringing about his plan of redemption to send a savior. Uh, and when we, we think about what, what happened, as, as even Noah read from, from the Gospel of Luke, even turning our minds and our hearts towards uh, celebrating and, uh, and worshiping Christ this Christmas, we, we get a sense that God did the same thing in the bringing about Christ into the world, using ordinary people and, in fact, unexpected people in uh, the Virgin Mary and Joseph and, and the, the hidden providence of God of bringing about Joseph 
Joseph and Mary having to go to Bethlehem because of the census that was requested by Caesar Augustus. And, and while there, being born in uh, the city that was prophesied that the Savior, would, the Messiah would be born in, and born in a way uh, that was uh, unexpected in desperate times as people were longing and waiting for God to show up and wondering if he was going to keep his promise there in an unexpected way in desperate times God kept his promise and sent a savior his son into the world that's what we see in the book of Ruth in fact we we know that the book of Ruth is written in order to encourage us and give us hope because Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says this it says whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope so the story of Ruth is filled with hope as we see God at work uh, in the, the lives of the people that we see in the book of Ruth, of Naomi and Ruth and, um, and Boaz uh, and the other, other people that show up. But it's also written, uh, as all of scripture is written, to encourage us and to give us hope. And I think that's, that's what we we really desperately need and what our world desperately needs. We're reminded of this line from, uh, from our Christmas hymns that, that tell us the birth of Christ was a thrill of hope for a weary world, that Christ came into the world and his coming into the world and God keeping his promise when we celebrate and what we celebrate at Christmas is the reminder that God is faithful to his promises and that he has given us a savior and that there is hope for people who are weary either because of their trials and their circumstances and also because of our sin and our need to be made right with God. And so this story behind the story is going to give us, I think, a unique encouragement uh, and I pray a, um, a refreshing sense of where we look to find hope. And not only as we ourselves can get weary during this season, but also as we have an opportunity uh, to, to, just as we prayed about in our prayer time, to move towards others to offer them the hope that's found in Christ. And so the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, is where we're going to be. And as we look at Ruth chapter 1 and we, we look at this story behind Christmas and we get a sense of um, what God is doing in it, I, I want us today to see three things that are true about God in the midst of Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to take the entirety of, of Ruth chapter 1 and uh, I want us to begin by seeing God's presence even when our circumstances call it into question. Uh, you see, the story of Ruth begins in chapter 1. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now that, that beginning uh, phrase, that beginning statement is filled with a lot of significance because uh, in the days when the judges ruled uh, takes us to the book that's right before uh, the book of Ruth in your Old Testament and it's called the book of Judges. And it's a time when uh, Israel had uh, come into the land but not fully taken it and there was no king over the land but God used a series of judges to lead his people into, uh, into uh, to ultimately living in and enjoying the promised land uh, after the time of, of Joshua. And during this time, uh, we're going to see it really was a time of darkness. 
Because even though they had come into the land, they had seen through Joshua God provide and deliver uh, Israel uh, from their enemies and give them the land that God had promised. When they come into, um, uh, when we get to the book of Ruth and we see that it's in the days of the judges, we're reminded through the book of Judges that it really was a dark time in Israel, spiritually speaking. It was a time of Israel being in this cycle of rebellion and judgment crying out to God, God hearing their cries and sending a deliverer and then them experiencing blessing and peace and rest. Uh, but after a period of rest, after a period of peace, Israel would repeat the same cycle. Uh, it, it's like being in, in, a, in a broken relationship or being in a Taylor Swift song. Like it's just a period and a pattern and cycle of brokenness, right? Uh, like you just continually find yourself uh, coming uh, back to God, needing uh, to, to repent, needing to return to God because you've forgotten um, his promises and you've forsaken his commands. That's what Israel was doing. It was a period of spiritual rebellion, a time of, of spiritual darkness, and uh, commentators uh, aren't exactly sure exactly when Ruth is situated in the time of Judges, but uh, the, the latter half of the book of Judges, uh, we see that Israel uh, had, through, through the deliverance that God had provided, had, had exercised pretty significant uh, defeat of the Moabites. So most likely, since that was true in the latter half of the book of Judges, most likely this occurs on the front end between Ehud and Jephthah uh, in the book of Judges uh, since um, the latter half we see that Israel had, had pretty much dominated uh, Moab during, during that time. So it's, it's kind of situated early in that time in this spiritually dark place. And it, perhaps the best description uh, of what took place in Israel during the time of Judges is the very last verse. If you just, in my Bible, the last verse of the book of Judges 21 is, is there on the other side of the page. Uh, the last verse of Judges 21, uh, 25 says this, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. On one hand, that sounds like glorious freedom to some of us, to get to do whatever we want to do. But it's actually the picture of spiritual rebellion and spiritual darkness. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes uh, and forsakes God, it brings about spiritual darkness and judgment. And, and this isn't disconnected from what follows. It says, this was in the days of the judges and there was a famine in the land. Uh, the, the spiritual darkness of Judah isn't disconnected from the famine, I believe, in Judah. God said that as his people obeyed him and followed him, that he would bless them, he would give rain, and, and he would give abundance of crops. But as they rebelled against him, God would withhold the rain, and he would bring uh, about his discipline on Israel. And so a famine comes into the land. So it's not only a time of darkness, but it's a time of loss. And then we're introduced to, it says, a man from Bethlehem and Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab. We're told that he and his wife and his two sons went down to Moab. Verse 2 introduces us further to him. His name was Elimelech, which means my God is king. And he lived in the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem literally means. So you see the irony that this guy who's called my God as king who lives in the house of bread uh, is leaving Bethlehem because there is no bread. And we, we are introduced to, to the days of the judges where no doubt there was spiritual darkness and people weren't living as if God were king. And so all of this kind of can be seen in the background here. And it says that Elimelech and his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons, Mahlon and Chilion, uh, great names if you're looking uh, for some names, uh, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. 
This is twice now that it's told us that uh, Elimelech is from Bethlehem in Judah. And it says they went, this is in verse, verse two, the end, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. We saw, I said that uh, this was a time of loss. The, the famine uh, was not only a loss of, of, of literally food for the people, but it ended up producing a loss of security and comfort. They had to leave their homes uh, and, and find food elsewhere. Uh, and so we, we see this sense of loss of home and security as they journey down to Moab. But uh, in, in, in what follows in verses 3 through 5, we see sorrow on sorrow stacked on top of, it each, of each other. Because we see first in verse 3 that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And it must have not been very long after they were there because then she was left with her two sons. And then those two sons took Moabite wives and the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And I've told myself that I'm not going to say Oprah instead of Orpah, but there's a good chance that I might. And I just want you to understand uh, that is a slip of the tongue. That's not, it's not Oprah, it's just Orpah uh, in the passage. Um, and, but these two women, uh, Orpah and Ruth, are married to Naomi's two sons. And then we find they live there about 10 years and both of her sons died. Verse 3 begins with Elimelech, Naomi, um, <clears throat> Mahlan, and Chilion. And then by the end, in verse 5, we see that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Sorrow on top of sorrow, on, on top of loss, on top of loss. And the question is, where is God in all of this? The first five verses, God's not mentioned. I said that this shows us God's presence even when our circumstances call this into question. You could see how perhaps uh, Naomi would call into question, is God really there? But I, I want to jump ahead uh, to two verses. I'm going to explain them fully in their context in just a moment. But when we think about where God was in all of this, it's, it's tempting to think uh, a certain uh, line of argument. Was, was this judgment because Elimelech left Bethlehem to go down to Moab. Uh, the Moabites were, were God's enemies. If you go back and you read the story of the Moabites, they actually, when Israel was passing through the promised land, they wouldn't come out and help Israel by giving them food. They literally wouldn't give them bread. Uh, and here they are without bread in the house of bread in Bethlehem, and they go down to Moab thinking they're going to find bread from the very people who get withheld bread from the people of Israel. And so all of this is uh, on, on display, and you think, well, did they sin in leaving uh, Bethlehem to go to Moab? Did Naomi turn from God when she went down to Moab? Were her two sons marrying Moabite women a sign of them turning from God, which would have clearly been disobedience to what God had said? I've wrestled with this this week because you can read various commentators on this and uh, some fully take this angle that it's uh, just a full expression of Elimelech and Naomi's blatant sin and rebellion and it's led them to this place. But what I've wrestled with is the Bible doesn't actually say any of that directly. It doesn't tell us that Naomi had sinned or that Elimelech had sinned. Uh, it doesn't make it explicit. And so I don't want to make explicit something that scripture doesn't make explicit. It doesn't tell us that Naomi is under under the judgment of God. In fact, you could argue that what Elimelech and Naomi did is very similar to what Abraham and Sarah did when they were in the land and there was a famine in the land in Genesis 12. They went down to Egypt uh, to look for food. In fact, in Genesis 26, we're told uh, that, uh, that uh, Isaac was going to do the same thing if it weren't for God intervening and telling Isaac not to go down when there was a famine in the land. 
And so I don't think that, uh, that there's no sin to be discussed here. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I want you to think about what Naomi says in terms of her belief about God in the midst of this. Uh, look at verse 13 for just a moment because we're going to see that Naomi gets word that the Lord had uh, blessed uh, Israel in, the, in, the, in Bethlehem back in Judah and that she is going to return from Moab to Bethlehem and Judah. And uh, initially her daughter-in-laws come with her, but then she tries to convince them to stay in Moab. And we'll talk through that in a moment, but I want you to consider what she says about God. In verse 13, um, she says uh, to her daughters at the very end of verse 13, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Yeah, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says. And then down in verse 21, upon finally returning to Bethlehem and Judah, as the people are surprised and excited to see her, Naomi doesn't want to be called by her name, which means pleasant uh, one or pleasantness. Instead, she wants to be called by the name Mara, which means bitterness, because she says in verse 21, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So some people read these two passages and they see a bitter old lady, um, Naomi, the bitter old woman who went down to Moab and is angry at God for her tough circumstances. And, and no doubt you can see in Naomi as we read through this passage a certain grief and a certain uh, bitterness from her circumstances that uh, is on one hand understandable um, and, and yet I want you to think about what she's saying even as she uh, says, uh, kind of bears complaint so to speak uh, of, of her circumstances. She says that God is almighty. She uses the name for God El Shaddai which means almighty, which speaks of God's sovereignty over all things. So even in the midst of what she's experienced, she affirms that God is almighty, sovereign and powerful over the circumstances of her life. And she also is affirming that God is actually present in the midst of her circumstances. She does not deny God. She wrestles with why God has allowed uh, what he has allowed to happen, but she believes God is present, intimately involved in the details of her life. And the truth of the Bible is that the Bible tells us that God can bring misery upon us from our perspective without it explicitly being judgment because of our sin. I want to press into this because I believe this is the mysterious way of God and our experience of life in a broken world. One one commentator said, Naomi's words point to the mysterious and often from a human perspective, unjust workings of God. Not that God is unjust, but our, our perspective is we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. It says, finally, one must realize that her outburst, speaking of her comments in verse 13 and verse 21, in fact, assumes a positive view of God, that God is almighty, that God is present, and that he controls the universe, normally with justice, her case being an exception, though not a rare one, but such is the mystery of God. He goes on to say that really behind Naomi's bitter complaint, there is cloaked a firm faith in who God is as almighty and as present. In fact, Psalm 34, 19 tells us, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Did you have to double take and read that in your Bible? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. 
but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You see, I think it's said well when, when it tells, when one writer says, the Bible not only tolerates complaint, but it almost honors it as a proper stance of one who takes God seriously. Now, I want to be careful here because I think we, we have to guard our hearts in, in recognizing that God tells us continually throughout Scripture to bear your heart before him. You read the Psalms and sometimes they make you a little uncomfortable. You're like, David, can you talk to God like that? Like, is that okay? To, you know, can we do this? And, and there it is in the Scriptures. Uh, and so uh, I want to be careful in the sense that uh, God, God is worthy of our worship. He really is, as Naomi says, sovereign. He really is uh, present. We, we have the ability to pour out our hearts and, uh, and share our burdens and our struggles and tell him uh, how we struggle with our circumstances if we are the kind of people who are taking God seriously. You see, when, when Naomi does this, she, she's not coming to deny God. She's sharing what she's gone through, and she's struggling with it on the basis of what she knows to be true about God. And so as people who go through trials like Naomi goes through, and we think about God's presence, even when our circumstances don't uh, seem to suggest it, we ought to take God seriously in our trials. What does it mean to take God seriously in our trials? It means that we state our case to him, but we remember who he is. You see, the, uh, the psalms that bear uh, the heart of David and the other psalmists, they, they, they cry out to God, where are you? When, why, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? They, they bear their hearts, but then they end with remembering who God is. They remember that he is almighty God, and that as we celebrate at Christmas, that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has always been a, with us, and now as we celebrate Christmas on the other side of the, uh, of the incarnation and the, uh, the death and, and resurrection of Christ, we know especially that God is with us, that he sent his son, Emmanuel, to be with us. So here we see in the first five verses God's presence, even when our circumstances suggest that he's not there, and we learn in our trials to take God seriously, to state our case but to remember who he is, to remember that he's almighty, to remember that he's with us. And it goes on, we see in, in verses 6 through 18, we're going to see that God visits us even in the face of our darkness and loss. Verses 1 through 5 lay out the spiritual darkness and the, the loss that Naomi has walked through, but then verse 6 makes a turn. It says, then she arose, uh, it says, with her daughters, her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab because for she heard that the Lord visited his people and had given them food. Now, verses 6 through 18 are, uh, this is kind of the, there's three parts. 19 through 22 is the final part of this chapter. This is the middle part and the longest part, and it's filled with dialogue. Verse 5 just gives us the summary of the circumstances. Verses 6 through 8 lays out uh, the, uh, the dialogue that takes place between Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And I think it, it's highlighting to us God's character as well as God's grace and the necessity of faith and returning to him. Because in verse 6 we find out that, that Naomi is going to return to, to Bethlehem because God had visited his people and had given them food. I mentioned earlier that the story up to this point is void of God. And then all of a sudden, uh, in verse 6, we see that God visits his people. Now, 
We think about going to visit people. I was thinking about this around the holidays. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember going to visit certain people with my, uh, with my dad. Uh, you know, going to visit a family member, an aunt or an uncle, or maybe some friends. And as a kid, sometimes it's exciting to go visit people, but sometimes it's like you're bored out of your mind when you go visit somebody, right? Like they've got nothing at their house that you're ready for. In fact, I saw somebody uh, posted this week a meme about... Uh, uh, Thanksgiving that uh, for those who have kids, you're going to somebody else's house uh, that's not kid-proofed. Your kids are going to be bored out of their minds. They're probably going to destroy a few things that they're not supposed to. Um, you kind of, if you can kind of go back in your mind to when you were a kid, sometimes it's not exciting to go visit someone. But on the flip side, I don't know if you've ever uh, been on the receiving end of a visit from that fun aunt or uncle or the fun grandparents, you know, when they come into town and when they come into town, they not only come themselves into town, but they come bearing gifts like toys and food and a date night and other things, you know, they come into town and they're there and it's exciting to receive a visit from that aunt or uncle or that really good friend or those fun grandparents. That's the kind of visit that this is. This isn't the bored out of your mind kind of visit. This is the exciting kind of visit that God shows up and visits his people and he brings stuff with him. He brings blessing with him and he visits his people. Now this phrase, visits his people, is, is one that's in the Bible in a few different places, and it always speaks of God's grace. Consider these passages in Genesis 50, verse 24. This is when Joseph is at the end of his life. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you, and he will bring you up out of Egypt and back into the land. And what was he talking about? He was talking about the Exodus. In Exodus 4, it says, uh, the people believed after seeing the signs that Aaron and Moses did when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. God visited his people. When God visits, he visits with grace and redemption. Luke chapter 1 is Zechariah's song of praise upon hearing the news of John the Baptist's birth. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. See, the visit of the Lord is an act of grace to his afflicted and often his wayward people. And when God visits his people, the only proper response is to return. Return to the Lord. And we see just as God visiting his people is a common theme throughout the scriptures, returning to the Lord is a common theme. In Nehemiah, as the people were in exile, God said, if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though you're outcast to the uttermost parts of the earth, I will gather you and bring you back from where I have sent you. Isaiah 44, 22 tells Israel the same thing. If they will repent, I, he says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me that I am their Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. I could go on. Zechariah, Malachi, return to me is the call of God when he visits his people. And interestingly, the word return is used repeatedly throughout Ruth chapter 1. Now, it doesn't tell us uh, so much about the repentance yet of Naomi or, or Ruth uh, in this case yet, but 
It speaks primarily of their physical returning uh, to Bethlehem and Judah. Or it speaks of Naomi's insistence of Orpah and Ruth returning to Moab. But in returning to, to Judah, Naomi was also returning to the Lord. She was going because the Lord had visited his people. And Ruth 1 verse 1, as I mentioned, tells us that Naomi is returning because the Lord had visited his people and it was in the time of the judges. So even though I think primarily our way to understand what's taking place in Ruth chapter 1 is not to view it through the lens of uh, Naomi sinned, therefore she's experiencing all these bad things. Uh, at the same time, Naomi's life, just like our lives, are often layered. And even though there's not a direct correlation between her sin and her circumstances here, it's not that she isn't without sin. Uh, in fact, we've said already that Israel, during the time of the judges, was marked by disobedience and rebellion. We know that Elimelech and Naomi disobeyed God's word when they took Moabite women for their sons, which would have been prohibited in the scriptures. We also see that Naomi has a certain type of ambivalence to Orpah and Ruth returning and worshiping the gods of the Moabites, uh, which would, be, would have been false gods that the scriptures tell us. But I, I think in the midst of, of all of this, though that we can't trace our sin to her circumstances, we can also say that in all of our trials, none of us are without sin. And that we always do well to, uh, to, to have a sensitive heart to God and to, uh, to confess our sins and to ask him to help us search our hearts to see where we may be sinning against him. I think, in fact, the thing that we see about Naomi is that even though she, she does state her complaint to God and, and still keeps a positive view of God as being sovereign and as being present, there's also a warning, I feel like, for us in Naomi's life. A warning to us in our trials. You see, I think Naomi in her trial was blind to what God was doing. And we tend to be blind in our trials to what God was doing. She saw her misery, but not God's grace and kindness in bringing the famine to an end. Even here, we see it says that she begins to go back in verses 6 through 7. I'm going to summarize this part a little bit to, to move us through. 6 through 7, she hears God had visited the people, so she returns with her daughters-in-law. And it's like on the way, Naomi realizes I don't know that this is going to go well for Orpah and Ruth. So somewhere between Moab, the fields of Moab, and Bethlehem, she stops and she turns to her daughters-in-law in verse 8 and she says, go, return each of you to your mother's house. And, and even here she has the sense of, I'm, I'm positive, I believe that the Lord will deal more kindly with you in Moab than he will if you stay with me because God's given me such a hard lot already. You don't want to stick with me because what, what has happened to me isn't going to be good. So she says, may the Lord grant you and deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, speaking of uh, their, their, their husbands who have now died and afterwards as they have been kind to, uh, to Naomi. The Lord grant you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, that you would go and return and get married and have security and, and have a family, she tells her daughters-in-law. And, and, and it says that after doing so, she kissed them, lifted up their voices, and they all wept together. But they said to her, no, we're not going to go. They were loyal uh, to Naomi. In verse 11, she says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? She tries to reason with them. She's like, I don't have any sons. It was a common custom in the day. If, uh, if the a relative of someone uh, that you were married to, when they died, if they weren't married, they could marry you and care for you. Um, <clears throat> and she says, I don't have any sons. Uh, and even if I did have sons, uh, you would be too old to marry them by the time they grew up. 
Uh, she says, it's better off for you to go back. It was a sensible argument. Go back to Moab where you have, you know, have known circumstance. You know your family. There's, there's surely a good Moabite man out there for you. There's plenty of fish in the sea is what she's telling them. Go back and get married and, and have security and comfort. And it says, after doing this, she shares with them, the hand of the Lord has been against me. It says they lifted up their voices. And this time, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and went off. But Ruth clung to her. And, and in, her, in her bitterness, I think the thing that she misses is she sees her misery, her bitterness of her circumstances, but she forgets God's grace and kindness and bringing the famine to an end. She sees her affliction, but then she doesn't see the mercy of God in giving her Ruth. In fact, and we'll again skip down to verse 20. Uh, one, it says, Naomi says that she went away from Bethlehem full and she's returned empty. I don't think she meant it as a slight to Ruth, but she came back. She didn't come back with nothing. She came back with her daughter-in-law. And even in, even in the midst of what she was going through, she was blind to God's mercy and giving her a daughter-in-law like Ruth. She, she came back to Judah, uh, she says, empty, but the Lord had not only given her Ruth, but we're told in, in Ruth chapter 4 that she actually had a parcel of land that her husband Elimelech had uh, that gave her a place to stay. Even in the midst of her trial, she couldn't see what God is doing. It's like that for us. Sometimes we get blinded by the pain, by the shock, by the, uh, by the sorrow of what we face that we miss what God is doing. And we also, in our trials, tend to forget what God has done. We not only can be blind to what's going on around us and the thousands of ways that God is working, but we also tend to forget what God has done. Naomi didn't remember that God had delivered Joseph when he was taken down into Egypt as a slave and thrown into prison when he was done wrong by Potiphar's wife and faced all kinds of trials. How uh, we're told in the scriptures in Genesis 50 that what, uh, that what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for Joseph, Joseph's good. We see repeatedly throughout the scriptures how God will use even the most difficult circumstances to bring about his purposes in the life of his people and for his glory. That's, that's what Naomi was missing that God had done. Had God not raised up, even in her own time, judges to deliver Israel when they had rebelled and strayed from God and had God not promised to hear the cries of his people and respond to them. But it's like this in trials that we're blinded to what God's doing around us and we forget what God has done in the past. So we have this warning even as we look at Naomi and we see that when God visits us, even in our darkness and even in our, our loss, sometimes we can miss what he's doing. But I also want us to see the grace and faith that's put on display through Ruth's response to Naomi. We saw earlier how... Uh, Ruth and Naomi tried to reason with Orpah and Ruth to go back to their, to their families and to return to Moab instead of going on with her to Judah. But in verse 15, she says to, to Ruth, after Ruth clung to her, she says, see your sister-in-law. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return. Go with her. But in Ruth's response, we see on display God's grace as well as the necessity of faith. One, one author said, we may understand Orpah, but we must emulate Ruth. It's understandable what, the, what, what Orpah chose to do. Why, why not go back? She would have faced uncertainty in Judah, perhaps even not being welcomed and received in light of being a Moabite. She, she would have had um, unknown, un, uh, unfamiliar, all kinds of questions as to what was going to happen. So she went back. And, and here we see Ruth says, I'm not going back to what's comfortable. I'm not going back what's to fam what's familiar. She not only expresses loyalty 
to, to Naomi, but more importantly, she expresses faith in God. Look, consider her words, which we heard read at the beginning. Uh, she says, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then she invokes the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. May he do so to me and more also if, any of these thing, if anything but death parts me and you. See, I think in Ruth, we get a picture of God's grace as well as a picture of faith. Consider how Ruth is a picture of God's undeserving grace. Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is not only apart from the people of Israel, but she worships a false god. But Ruth has come to a place where she believes that Naomi's God is her God, is the one true God. And that to not only claim her God, but to be a part of her people. It's, a, it's an expression of her turning from her way, and you see it contrasted with verse 15, Orpah returned to her people and her gods. But Ruth says, I'm not returning to the gods of my people. I'm trusting the God of your people. I'm trusting Yahweh. I'm putting my faith in him. And it's a picture of how God in his undeserving grace pursues sinners who don't deserve it. And the truth is all of us are like Ruth. All of us don't deserve his grace and yet he freely gives it to us. It's a reminder that the sins of our past don't have to determine the hope of our future. That's good news. I don't know if you know that's good news for you. That's really good news for us. This is what Christmas reminds us of, is that God pursues people who are in their sins and who couldn't pursue him of their own accord. So he comes after us. Just like we sing. He, just like we sung, he's coming after us and, and he's showing us undeserving grace. And then Ruth shows us how we respond to undeserving grace through faith, saving faith. She forsakes all and turns to God, as well as sanctifying grace. You see, Ruth is, is showing us what it means to trust God as Savior, but also what a life of faith looks like. She's demonstrating to us the kind of faith that trusts God in the face of uncertainty and trials. Ruth is a, a model, like Abraham, of trusting God in the face of the unknown, believing that he's worth following. But in many ways, Ruth even go, takes us further than Abraham because Abraham had God's promise in his hand and he took God at his word and believed him. Ruth has no promise but to know that God must receive those who call out and believe. Just like God told Abraham, because you have believed, I will count you as righteous. That type of sanctifying faith that marks the life of a believer is to, is to mark our lives. It shows us that God visits his people. And when he visits his people, he calls us to return to him. I don't know how God's visited you as a believer. Maybe it's been small ways of reminders of his grace through his word, through other people. Isn't it, isn't it interesting, even though Naomi, uh, no doubt, uh, has, a, uh, has a, a little bit of a struggle with her circumstances, she confesses positively who God is. How else did Ruth hear about who God was? But listening, perhaps, to Naomi and Elimelech. Perhaps it's even a reminder to us that God wants to use us to tell others about his undeserving grace so they might put saving faith in him and then live out that saving faith through trusting God even in the face of uncertainty and trials. Isn't that also the story of Mary and Joseph? 
When God shows up and wrecks their life unexpectedly with the news that Mary's with child and, and everyone wouldn't understand what was taking place and they, they, they have to walk through this together and, and Joseph's trying to be a righteous man upright. He's going to try to honor Mary by ending this engagement early. Instead, God says, says to him, trust me, this is my plan, this is my work. And then together they follow God in the face of uncertainty and they welcome in God made flesh, the Savior come into the world, trusting God even when they didn't understand it. That's what we're reminded of at Christmas. And this is the story behind Christmas which tells us not only about saving faith but sanctifying faith. And then finally, I want us to see God's blessing in, even in the face of our emptiness. So the, the two... Of, of them, uh, Ruth and Naomi, they, they continue on. I, I kind of envision this, like, I don't know if you've ever been on a road trip, either with friends. I did this in college with my friend, my roommate, as well as I've done this in my marriage, where you kind of have an argument, um, <clears throat> and then you kind of settle it, but then you drive in silence. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done that, you know, or the, the drive in silence part. Maybe you've done that with a sibling, right? Like you just kind of exist in the same space, but you're not quite ready to talk about it. Um, it it's kind of like it says when Naomi saw that she was determined, verse 18, uh, she said no more. And then they just went on to Bethlehem as if they didn't talk any longer. I'm sure they talked, but that's kind of the picture that I have in mind. It was an awkward camel ride uh, from Moab uh, to, to Bethlehem. But they get there. And here's what we're going to see. Naomi returns, and the people are surprised to see her. The whole town's stirred up. And they said, is that Naomi? And this provides Naomi a chance once more to bear testimony to how she feels about her circumstances. And her overwhelming feeling is one of, of emptiness. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, which one has to question your memory sometimes when you go through trial. Did you really go away full, Naomi? There was a famine. You ran for your life because you didn't have anything to eat. Uh, but she, she knows she went away at least with her husband and her two sons. But now it says she comes back and she's come back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity? And then it just says this in summary. So Naomi returned. There it is again. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, they returned, there's the word again, to the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem. And notice this last phrase. Just as in the time of the judges was important, here's the last phrase that's also important. At the beginning of the barley harvest. She feels empty, but God has brought her back to blessing. She experientially says, God, I've come back wrecked and empty from my loss and from this sorrow. But God has actually brought her back to bless her. There have been two major problems in Ruth. They lacked food, and Naomi said, I don't have a husband to give you an offspring so that you can have somebody to marry, Ruth. Well, he's brought him back to Bethlehem, and he solved the first problem. And it's as if the, the author is telling us that God is up to something. And the second problem that Naomi thought she had, God is about to answer above and beyond what, he, what she thought he could do in providing for Ruth. And in the midst of all of this, not only is God going to provide for Naomi and Ruth, but God is actually working out his plan of redemption in a way that they can't see, in a way that they don't understand. And it reminds us here, Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem just at time for the barley harvest. 
Now they have hope that not only God will feed them, but perhaps God will even provide for what they've asked for for Ruth. And in all of this, God is working out this plan of redemption, providing also redemption to Ruth, bringing her to God and into the people of God, and showing us where true hope is found in a weary world. True hope is found in the hidden providence of God. True hope is found in trusting who God is even when we can't see that he's there. That's what Naomi and Ruth show us, a picture of God's undeserving grace and the response of faith that trust in him and his working even when we don't understand it, even when we can't see it. The book of Ruth is, is written and it, it speaks to people who wonder if God is really there when they experience tragedy after tragedy and it makes them question the very foundation of their faith. It's a story for people who wonder whether a life of faithful obedience to God is really worth it when you go through so much hardship and so many challenging circumstances. It's a story for people who can't imagine that anything great can come from their lives and from their ordinary trusting in God and their living by faith. It's a story that reminds us when we can't see what God is doing that we really can trust him, his character, that he is almighty and that he is really there. And I want to end as Noah prepares to come by reminding us of a, a song and, and words written by William Cooper. It's actually his birthday today. Um, I found that uh, unexpectedly. Um, he wrote a, a song called God Moves in a mysterious way. And this vernacular has been entered into kind of the way we speak, this, this speech has been entered into our vernacular that we say stuff like this, like God moves in mysterious ways, right? Uh, God just shows up and does things. Sometimes people say that in kind of an ambivalent way, like I don't know how to explain it, God moves in mysterious ways. Um, <clears throat> but uh, what William Cooper is saying here isn't, isn't about ambivalence to not understanding what God is doing. It's about deep faith and trust in the hidden providence of God. Consider these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and performs his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, this, this line stopped me in my tracks this week. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God works in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. You, you may not have caught it, but when it says that he plants his footsteps in the sea, I don't know if you've ever stepped into the sand if you're walking while the tide's coming in and you, you step in the sand, eventually as the water keeps coming up, the footsteps are, are removed because the water washes it away. 
It's, he's saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I, I, I know that somehow you're at work, but I can't trace your footsteps because your footsteps are planted in the sea. And you ride up on the storm, the, the waters wash it out. God, somewhere deep down in some mind, I can't understand in the skill that only you have, you're accomplishing and working out your sovereign will. But, but I love, and this is the encouragement I think that, that we need. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't judge him by your wisdom, by, by your perspective. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence is a smiling face. The, the circumstances that seem bleak and desperate and despairing to us, there's confidence that there is a God who's really there, who's really sovereign, that really can be trusted. Because in the darkness of one night in Bethlehem, he showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And God said to us, not only am I almighty, but I'm Emmanuel. I'm with you. And he not only came, but he died and he rose and he's coming again. That's our hope at Christmas. If you don't have that hope, that's the hope that Christ holds out to you today. That's the hope that he encourages us as believers to hold on to, to not miss in the busyness and the stress and the craziness of the season, but to cling, cling tight to.